The sermon text is from John 18, verses 12 to 14 and 19 to 24. And you can find that on page 588 in your paper Bibles. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, we get out your Bibles if you got them. Uh, we are in John chapter 19, which you just heard read. Um, and you can go ahead and open up there. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of the paperback Bibles that you found in your seats. We would love for everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. So just take that home with you. Um, so, let's talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> we hear about him everywhere else. Why not here? You know, one of the themes of this insane election so far has been the, the strange Christianity of Donald Trump, right? It, it keeps coming up. Uh, and it probably all started a few months back when a reporter asked him if asking for forgiveness was something that was central to his life. And he responded with these kind of strange quotes. He said, I try not to make mistakes where I have to ask for forgiveness. And so, you know, they pressed him on it and they said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, why do I have to repent or ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honorable guy. Now, after saying that, uh, it's, lots of Christian leaders have, have come out and, and been pretty vocal, uh, weighing in on his faith. Everybody from the, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary to the Pope himself, which led to the awesome CNN headline, Trump blasts Pope, right? <laughs> uh, it's kind of amazing. And, and what seems to be even more unique about that is even as all these leaders are talking about this guy, saying we don't think he really is a Christian, there are huge portions of, you know, quote, Christian voters who continue to go out and, and vote for him. So, so what's the deal with that? How, how is that possible? Well, I think part of it, uh, at least a small part of it, you know, there's probably thousands of articles you could go and read why that is, but I think at least part of it is that, that Trump's understanding of faith, those quotes that I read a few seconds ago, uh, they actually reflect the way a lot of people think about God. Um, there is a common theme in spirituality today 
And that theme has a lot more to do with our modern instincts about God than really any specific teachings we might find about him in, in Scripture. Uh, there's a notion. And it's not just among Christians, even. There's this notion amongst a lot of people that we come to God on our own terms. We find God in our own way. We seek after him when we're ready. And then, whenever that is, whenever we are ready, God's going to be happy to receive us. Why wouldn't he be, right? He'll be happy to hear from us. But that type of thinking that's so common with us is actually, it puts us in a unique place in human history. And it puts a lot of obstacles in our way today as we try to look at this passage we just read from John chapter 19. Um, Because this account takes place in a world with completely different presuppositions about God. Um, so before we can get here, before we can figure out what this is all about, we need to, we need to do a little bit of work uh, this morning. First, we, we need to do some theological unpacking, and then we're going to have to do some historical unpacking before we can figure out what this really means for us today. So, so that's what I want us to do. First, I want us to, to ask the question, why do we need a high priest anyway? What, what's the deal with this high priest thing? Why do we need a high priest the theological question. Then secondly, I want to do the historical angle. What's going on here? Uh, why is Jesus condemned in this passage, right? We're looking at the trial of Jesus. So why does Jesus get condemned, historically speaking? And then finally, this practical question. What does it mean for us? So let's go there. Why do we need a high priest? The notion that we come to God on our own terms, when we're ready for it, when we feel like it, that he'll be waiting for us when we're ready, At best, that's a strange idea. But more importantly, I think it's a completely illogical idea. Um, And here's why that's important for us. We're dealing today with the high priest. His name is Annas. Um, And the high priest served an extremely important role in Israel. Um, His main role... If you read through the Old Testament, especially uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, those, you, you see that his main role is to represent the people before God. Now, today, when we hear that, we might wonder, why does anyone need representation before God? Why do we need someone to represent us before God? And of course we wonder that, right? Because we live in a world where we don't need a lot of mediators these days, right? We can, if we want to, connect with the most powerful people in the world, right? We can, we can uh, complain to CEOs on Twitter, and they'll respond back to us, right? We have an expectation that, that if we try hard enough, we can get in touch with anybody we want to. We live in a world where we expect we can get a hearing before the most powerful. But if you, th- if you think about it, just for a moment, logic can tell you that it's kind of crazy to think about God like that. And Scripture tells us that all over the place. That really, if there is a God, right? if there is a God who is powerful, who created the world, who gives us life, what does he owe us? What, what right do we have to make any demands before him? Well, you know, he, he doesn't owe us nothing. He doesn't owe us anything. If Psalm 8, if you read Psalm 8, it has uh, this, 
same idea right at the heart of it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, so the psalmist, he's saying, when I think about how big creation is and how, how amazing this universe is and how vast and complex it is, when I think about that, then he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? What are people that you even give them any thought? It doesn't make sense. But even more important than uh, his power is his holiness. The Bible teaches us that the main thing separating us from God is not our smallness compared to his bigness, but it's his holiness. This God, it says in Psalm 18, his way is perfect. If you compare that with what Jeremiah says about us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The narrative of Scripture tells us that on one hand, God is entirely good, that he's perfect, that he's just, that he's right, and then we are, we're not. We're just not. Since the earliest moments in history, we have rebelled against him. And in our natural state, we are so far from God's standard of perfection. And that's why whenever you, if you read through the Old Testament, uh, we see accounts of this huge disparity. We see all over stories where people realize how big this gap is. And immediately, uh, as soon as they realize how holy God is, they, they become painfully aware of themselves. It's, it's like if you've ever you know, gotten dressed up to, to go out and realized once you got there that you were underdressed. You know, you're, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're going out to dinner or something, and you put on clothes that you think look nice. You feel good about yourself. You head out to the restaurant, and when you get there, you know, everybody's wearing a tie, right? Everybody's wearing a nice dress. And all of a sudden, you start to, like, the thing that once didn't bother you at all starts to make you feel really uncomfortable. You know, you're very aware. Your, your flip-flops aren't cutting it all of a sudden. <laughs> Well, that, to a much greater extent, is what happens when people realize what holiness is. In Isaiah chapter 6, uh, we see this story where the prophet Isaiah is, is first called by God. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, who was a king at the time uh, of Israel, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When, when Isaiah gets a hold of God's holiness, he cries out for mercy. He says, What am I going to do? Woe is me. Or in Exodus, when the people witness the power of God on Mount Sinai, Moses comes down and they say to Moses, you speak to us. You speak to us and we'll listen, but, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And the point of all that is simple. No one in Scripture ever asked, why do we need a representative before God? No one would ever bother to ask, why do I need someone to, to stand before me? Because, of course, Sinful people need a representative before a holy God. 
instead of thinking that we deserve a hearing before the God, God of all creation, the Bible teaches us that our position is much more like uh, the way an enemy of the state would relate to the president, right? The way, like Edward Snowden, if you know him, in, in uh, exile in Russia this, uh, who, for releasing a bunch of uh, top-secret documents. If, if he wants to go meet with Obama, what's he going to do? He's not going to you know, take a commercial flight into D.C. and walk through the front door of the White House. He's going to need to do some work first. He's going to need some mediaries. He's going to need some people to, to, to broker that meeting, to deal with the fact that right now he's guilty before the law. He's going he's gonna to need someone who can deal with his guilt first. That is why we need a high priest, okay? This is, in a sense, what the high priest's job was. His job was to represent a sinful people before a holy God. Now, there were lots of priests besides the high priest in ancient Israel. There were lots of priests who performed sacrifices and kept kind of the, the worship of this community going. But the high priest had this very special role that once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he did two things. As he was representing the people to God, he first entered into what was called the Holy of Holies. He entered into the innermost uh, place of the sanctuary, the place that represented the presence of God. And he went in there with fear and trembling, it tells us, with a robe that had bells on the bottom in case he dropped dead. <laughs> they could pull him back out. He went in there once a year into the presence of God. And then the second thing was he offered a sacrifice. You can... Read about it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. But it tells you that he offered these animals without spot or blemish. And he offered them for himself first and for his family, for all the priests. And then he offered them for all the people in the nation of Israel. And then finally, he all offered it even for the sanctuary itself, even for that innermost room, that holy, most holy of holy places, to sanctify it from the sin of the people. Those people in Israel needed a priest, and so do we. They needed a priest because, just like us, our rebellion and sin has separated us from a holy God. Psalm 130 says, If you should count iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is nobody. A priest was necessary because no one can stand in the presence of a holy God and live. So that's why, why we need a priest. With that in mind, let's now think about our story. Let's think about John chapter 18 and, and look at Christ on trial before the high priest. Why is Christ condemned here? So I just told you what a priest does. And if you listen to our story, you might be asking Okay, if that's what a priest does, what is this guy doing? What is this priest doing? Because his role is, is really different from that, right? He's sitting and he's, he's judging and he's putting Christ on trial. Uh, why, why is he in that position? Why is there a priest who seems to be some kind of uh, extension of the law? Well, now we get into the history here. So what has happened since those very early days with Moses leading the people out of Egypt is... Uh, 
Well, there's a lot. There's a huge a whole history of a nation that's happened there. But at this point in history, Rome is now in charge. The Roman government has taken over, and the, there is no longer a king of Israel. Um, there is now the, the king of the emperor of Rome, and he has jurisdiction. And because of that, the high priest historically uh, became the de facto head of the government for the Jewish people. He ended up becoming the person with the most authority and the person who was deferred to. And eventually, he became, uh, because of the religious freedom that Rome allowed, he became sort of the religious authority and the government authority of these people. So then, you know, when politics and religion start to get mixed together, you know, weird stuff can happen. And so eventually, this, this high priest job became something that was handed out to political favorites. Um, and this guy, Annas, uh, he was the high priest, but it was very different from the type of high priest that, that God had prescribed. The high priest's office was meant to be a lifelong office, that once you became the high priest, you stayed the high priest until you died. But the Roman version of high priest was a, a term with a fixed amount of years. So what happens here in our story is uh, there's this other wrinkle. Annas is the patriarch of this high priestly family, but he's not actually the high priest anymore. It tells us in uh, verse 8, or sorry, in verse 13, that he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And if you look at the history books, what you find was Annas actually had five of his sons who served as high priest during his lifetime and a son-in-law. Um, so what that means is Annas is this priestly patriarch, but he's not, uh, he's not serving the official position. He is still the high priest, probably, in the minds of the people. You know, he's the guy who has the spiritual authority, but at this point, he's more of the power behind the throne than the actual man sitting on the throne. And that means this trial is not an official trial. But this is a pre-trial. This isn't even really the religious court. That was called the Sanhedrin. And Jesus isn't in that at this point. This is more of a... I mean, the only way to really see it is it's kind of a pre-trial shakedown. He's trying to, to figure out how they can expose Jesus, how they can build a case against him so that when he does get carried to the Sanhedrin, they'll have a charge to put against him. And so with that in mind, here's what happens in verse 19. It says, The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Given all that context, one of the things that Jesus is saying in this response um, is he's trying to point out the injustice that's happening here. Because historically speaking, uh, when you're in a trial like this before a priest, the way that those things were properly conducted, you don't even talk to the defendant. You don't speak to the accused. What you're supposed to do is bring in people to testify against him. They bring in witnesses, and it's on the strength of multiple witnesses that they get a conviction. 
And so when Jesus says, why don't you ask all those people, his point is, give me justice. It's worth noting, in this moment, Peter is actually right around the corner. We skipped over this chunk of text, but this is uh, kind of woven through this story is the story of Peter watching as these things unfold. Jesus' close disciples were very nearby. He could have easily said, you know, go ask the people. Peter's right there, and he's denying me, I'm pretty sure, so you might as well bring him in, right? He doesn't say that, though. And there's a theme that's kind of running through that response. Uh, we, we didn't talk about this last week, but when Jesus was getting arrested, there was a line where he said to the crowds of people coming to arrest him, he said, if it's me you seek, then let these men go. He said, if it's me you seek, then let these men go. And one guy in our church said this week that, in a sense, the whole gospel is wrapped up in that line. If it's me you seek, then let these men go. This mockery of a court, they can't find any reasonable charge against them. But even in this moment, Jesus refuses to bargain his way out of it. He refuses to to sell out his disciples. He refuses to sacrifice other people for his own freedom. But instead, in this moment, Christ is giving himself so his followers can go free. Now, there's something else going on here. When, when he's focused on this kind of pre-trial, John wants to set up a really clear contrast for us. He's showing us on one hand, here's Jesus, the righteous, standing bound. And on the other hand, Annas, the religious authority, condemning him in this illegal trial. There's this, there's this picture of, of innocence uh, versus corruption and guilt. And, and here's what happens. Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? There's a really there's a deep irony in that statement. Is that how you answer the high priest? Because what the book of Hebrews would tell us, if you ever get a chance, you should go read it. We preached on it a couple years ago. But the the letter uh, that's called Hebrews in the New Testament, it tells us that in this moment, it's Jesus, not Annas, who is truly acting as the high priest. That Christ, the righteous Son of God, was willingly offering himself, was willingly sacrificing himself in that moment to cover the sins of the people. Here we see that Christ has taken the place of those spotless animals without blemish. And Hebrews tells us that this sacrifice, his sacrifice, is the true sacrifice that all of the other ones were pointing to. His sacrifice is the true sacrifice that all of those Old Testament rites were ultimately leading towards. If you've ever, um, if you read through our, our year Bible reading, we just went through, Ex- through Leviticus, and you might have read a bunch of these descriptions, right? Uh, a bull for this, a goat for this, a dove for this, grain for this. Um, but over and over, you see all these animal sacrifices, and you wonder, 
what's, what's this all about? You know, the descriptions, they can kind of get you, they can be boring, they can be confusing. You can wonder what's going on. Well, there's one message that, that keeps coming through in all of these animal sacrifices. One thing you should always keep in mind when you see that stuff. Sin demands blood. Sin demands life. As Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. And that's what the cross is all about. Jesus is offered as our sacrifice. Once and for all time. Christ is our sacrifice, and at the very same time, Christ is our priest. And this is the the crazy thing for me. What do we say a priest does? Do you remember the two things I said that a priest would do? He enters the Holy of Holies, and he offers the sacrifice, right? Well, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, here's how it describes Christ's work. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered the greater and more perfect tent. So it says he entered uh, not the one that's made with hands, not the sanctuary that we built, but he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes sanctify, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says that that Christ, in his sacrifice, entered into the real holy places, not the symbolic ones. He entered into the real holy of holies, into the actual presence of God, And he gave himself as a sacrifice. That on the cross, he died for our sins. But even more than that, he he rose again from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, Hebrews tells us that he continues to intercede for us. As a priest, he lives on in eternity to intercede for his people. All right, so the question is, why was Christ condemned? And the answer is, historically speaking, there's not a, whole, not a great case against him. Why was Christ condemned? He was condemned for you. He was condemned because your sin demands blood. He was condemned because we all stand condemned before a holy God. He was sacrificed to cover our guilt, to purify us once and for all, and to make a way back to reconcile us to God, to make it so that we can approach God. He was condemned because in this moment, Christ is acting as our true high priest. While he stands before this this, uh, ridiculous court, he's acting as our true high priest, and he still acts that way right now. He's still performing that role for you at this very moment. So what does that mean for us then? This is the, the last question. That's, I'm sorry that this is like, these are some theologically dense ideas. You know, we got to unpack this stuff and, and I think it takes a long time. There's books and books and books written on this stuff. Um, but the reason I, I think it's worth our time to try to explain how Christ is a high priest is because that idea is really key for understanding 
the Christian life. Once you realize that you can't come to God on your own, the way we, we think about God, the way we understand God has to change. And you know, I think it, in most people's lives, there comes a point where you, where you realize you're a sinner. There comes a point where you realize you're not perfect, um, that there's lots of ways that you fall short, that, that, that even you don't live up to your own standards, right? You're not a good enough neighbor. You're not a good enough friend or, or spouse. And that if you're going to win your way to God based on what you've done, even our own law convicts us, let alone God's law. We're guilty of, of our own standards. And that's why when we, that quote from Donald Trump about not needing forgiveness, about not making mistakes, that's why that stuff really rubs Christian leaders the wrong way and a lot of Christians the wrong way. Because it's the opposite of life. <laughs> and it's the opposite of a Christian's experience of life, right? Paul, towards the end of his ministry, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, who started a bunch of churches, who uh, was an extremely faithful minister of the gospel, at the end of his life said, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Looking back on his life, writing this letter to another young pastor, he said, the one thing you can count on <laughs> is that Christ came for sinners, and I'm the worst of them. And I think if you're a Christian in this room, you could probably say that too. Don't you feel that way? That the longer you, you know Jesus, the more you walk alongside of him, you realize your sin's bigger than you thought it was. Now, sure, you might get over some of your bad habits. You know, you might, you might deal with your anger problem a little better than you used to. But even as, as God's working on those places of sin in your life, and those things move away, you just realize they were hiding the bigger problems. They were just in the way of your pride. And, and now you have an envy issue to deal with, and now you have lust, and there's all this mess in your heart, and you just you realize how bad you are. You realize you thought your sin was like this, and it's really way bigger than this. And then what? You know, if that's where you are, then what? Well, that's when you need a priest. That's when you need to remember that Christ is our high priest. As Christians, we don't come to God on our own terms any more than Israel did. We don't come to him bare with our sin exposed. We don't stand before him like Isaiah did and melt in his presence. We sing that song, right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. Christ intercedes for us. That's what he does as our priest. And what is he doing when he's interceding? He's, he's not, you know, it's not God with a lightning bolt who's ready to strike you down for your sin. It's not him trying to say, no, 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 don't do it. He's standing there as a testament. 
He's standing there with God as a testament that, that justice has been paid, that sins have been forgiven. Remember, God's the one who sent him there in the first place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But Christ is forever in the presence of the Father, appealing to him on our behalf, receiving our prayers. And it, it tells us even he's doing that with understanding, right? He's not just any high priest. He's a, he's a high priest who's been through it with us. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, let's confess our faith. For, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If Jesus is our high priest, what that means is, even now, whatever you're struggling with, Jesus has been there. Whatever that sin is in your life that, that is just so shameful to you, the, the secret thing that you, you don't even want to tell anybody, the thing you think, God can never understand that I'm still struggling with this after all these years, whatever that sin is, Jesus knows what that temptation's like. And he lives to intercede for you. Christ is a priest. He's able to sympathize. And if that's really the case, if this is our reality, if this is the Christian's reality, that it means everyone who believes in him should have confidence before God. We should have joy before God. We should be able to enter boldly before him. Paul says if, if Christ is really interceding for us, then it means that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's, there's no temptation. There's no power on this earth. There's no sin so great. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. If Christ is our priest, then it's no longer you know, the, the Snowden-Obama relationship anymore. But we're, we're no longer enemies of the state. But we're welcome. We're welcome to come. We're welcome to draw near. We're welcome to be confident when we come to him. So I think that's my encouragement to you all this morning. Let's draw near. Let's draw near with confidence. Let me ask you. you know, maybe you are considering faith right now. Maybe all this stuff sounds a little crazy still. Um, but do you long for the confidence to approach God? If you do, the invitation is open. Come to your Savior. Admit that you, you have no rights by yourself to come in the front door and receive this sacrifice by faith. Receive what he's done for you. And for the Christians in this room, I want to ask, do you actually have confidence right now? Do you believe that, that God is favorably disposed towards you? I want to invite you to come. Come to him in repentance. Come to him in faith. Come to this table right here. And remember, the sacrifice has been given. It's been offered before God. The penalty has been paid, and it's yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word um, and this amazing picture that you show us, that you are the great high priest, that you have fulfilled the office for us, and that you've made a way. 
Lord, I pray that you would, uh, in this moment, forgive us for our, our arrogance and for our pride, uh, for the ways that we, we, we act as if you owe us something. And Lord, I thank you for the gift of your grace that, that even though you owe us nothing, you've come down. You've given us your son, and you've made a way to you. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.